Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us on this program here in New York, Tom Porcelli, RBC Capital Markets Chief, U.S. Economist. Good morning to you, Tom. Hey, how are you guys doing? You and I have talked. Wait, wait, for a before. Sorry, months. go on, go on. Sorry, really he, he's not still behind me, right? No, he's no. moved. <laughs> he's gone. He's gone. <laughs> Tom King's shadow literally, like, he's, he's literally gone. Don't worry. I, I can, I, I can. I've now checked the internal system. He has walked out of the building. It was priceless. Sorry, I'm sorry. Jonathan. Confusing a return to trend growth with a journey to somewhere a whole lot more worrying. We've talked about this so yeah. many times through much of 2019. Now some people confusing full employment with a cyclical peak in labor market conditions. You've written about that. Yes. Just explore it further for us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things is I think people get caught up in sort of headlines. And, uh, and I don't mean news headlines. I mean sort of, you know, headline economic stuff. Uh, and one of the things I think people get lost in is, uh, particularly if you're looking at sort of you know empl- employment to population ratios, um, or if you're looking at um, um, labor force participation rates. And I think if you look at the headlines on these things, um, you know they're, they've not really done all that much. And I think it leads people to sort of you know draw this conclusion that um, you know we're we're still not even remotely close to full employment. But what we've been saying to people is, okay, but you can't look at these th- those specific headlines. You need to look at the cyclical part rate. You need to look at the cyclical employment to population ratio. And when you do that, um, and, and sorry, just to digress, uh, cyclically, what I mean is, you know, sort of the prime working age cohort. So the 25 to 54 year olds. Yeah, and when you do talking, that, yeah. and when you do that, what you see is that those uh, measures have all improved dramatically, dramatically, which from, from our perspective, again, if you look at uh, the, you know, whether it's the part rate or the employment to population ratio, we're above where we were in, in even the, certainly in the previous cycle. Um, and so it's really easy to make the case that you're, you know, if you're not at full employment, you're really, really close. I guess when I see the headlines of uh, of economic stuff, as you put it, yep. my big question is, should I be bullish or bearish today, right? I mean, is yep. that basically, what's the, what sort of the most, so given the fact that we are yep. seeing better employment than expected, yep. Is that a bull argument or a bear argument? You know, it's funny, and 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 Jonathan and I have certainly had this conversation before. Um, it, it it seems all of a sudden now today, like literally over the last like week or two, that good is good again, right? Which is which is sort of perverse because good was bad, bad was good. We had all these like weird sort of iterations, right? Which is utterly ridiculous in every way. But totally. now all of a sudden today, good is good, and um, so, but but again, I stress. This is over the last week or two, and I'm, I'm defining that in terms of sort of the many clients that I speak to on a pretty regular basis. And, and I, the thing I find utterly amusing about that is nothing has changed. Literally nothing has changed over the last week or two. You know, all of a sudden everyone is like feeling a little bit better about the backdrop. So I don't know whether it is, you know, maybe people are, you know, sort of coming to grips with the reality that maybe something is going to get done on trade. Uh, although I would hasten to add that anytime anyone gave me like the bear case for things, they never started it off with trade. But but again, maybe maybe that's fair. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's the equity market is up 23% year to date. I, I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden people are feeling a little bit better about the backdrop. And I think that's, I think that's all well and good, but I think I'm, I'm just waiting for the next shoe to drop now because I'm telling you, the vast majority of people that I spoke to prior to the last week or two have been overwhelmingly negative. Um, but now all of a sudden people are feeling a little bit better about the, so the backdrop, that I mean, next... uh, which I find silly because I'm not sure that they're basing it on anything sound. So, Tom, could that next oh, shoot? Oh, but, sorry, okay. I want to make sure that point is not left out there in ether. I've never thought that people should be negative, um, but uh, they were. So, sorry. So, would that next shoe to drop be the consumer? The consumer is 
arguably the only thing holding up this economy, maybe yeah. because of the yeah. at, at or near full employment. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I think there's no question that the consumer is sort of, you know, uh, p- pulling a lot of weight, right? Uh, they're punching way above it, uh, uh, of their weight. But I think if you want to make the argument for the demise of the consumer, you 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 got to really you, you. I don't even know where to where, where right, you'd yeah. go to find that. Um, I, I mean, again, let me be clear. I, I don't look through the world with rose-covered glasses. Um, but I think labor backdrop's incredibly tight. Wage pressures continue to build. Um, the level of saving in the United States, whether it's sort of just um, consumer or pr- total private saving, uh, is incredibly elevated. Meaning that there's even some some cushion should should the consumer sort of suffer through some bout of of uh, hesitation. So I, I would say that it's really difficult to make the case that the consumer's about to roll over when all evidence to the contrary, right? The consumer's in phenomenal shape. The division of the Fed has turned into unity, it seems, yeah. over the last couple of weeks. What do you make of that? I, I just, uh, you know, and Tom and I were talking about this on TV a little while ago. I mean, the, the fact that Evans, you know, wasn't one of the folks looking for a cut after the, not after the most recent meeting, the meeting prior. I mean, he he said he wasn't one of the um, the, the folks looking for a cut. I mean, I think for me that, that at, it was, I mean, we sort of had always thought that they would have a hard time getting more cuts anyway, but that really drove home for us. It's like, you know, the hurdle for additional cuts right now is so significant. Um, when you have all, all these extreme doves basically on the same page at this point. So uh, I, I think it would take real deterioration from here. By the way, let's not forget, next year is an election year. And while, we'll, while anyone who's done this for any length period of time knows that the Fed has engaged in policy action during election years. It usually takes a heck of a lot to, for them to engage. So um, I think Fed on hold is for, for, the, for the coming year is absolutely the right call, which so the market seems to be buying into. So you're saying that you don't want to be seen as having uh, too, too much of a rose-colored uh, view of the world, but also uh, you've never been negative. And this nuance... That's not true, though. No, 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 no. Sorry. Or, no, I mean, that you haven't I've been... I've never been negative? No, no. Yeah, you've been negative. Okay, good. But I'm saying <laughs> that you've been generally positive this Recently, year. absolutely, Recently, which has yeah. been really easy. Okay. Yeah. So you've generally been positive. You also don't want to be too rosy. Yeah. This nuance, I think, is getting... Uh, lost in this market yeah. and difficult for people to read because it has been so uh, monolithic in its story. Either the yeah. Fed was backing it or trade was going to p- torpedo it. What's the sort of trade around this in terms of, you know, does that mean markets go up or down? Yeah, yeah. So what, what I would say is I think, you know, one of the things that we had built into our view was that yields would actually start to rise. Yields would start to rise only after we got a trade deal done. Now, in fairness, we always thought a trade deal was going to get done, but we've been thinking of it more in terms of like, you know, sort of a first half of 2020 event, like sort of, you know, some, sometime early in the first half of the year, you get a trade deal done. So it's happening a little bit sooner than we thought. And so if you look at our forecast, we had built in a rise in yields in the second half of of, of next year. Um, if you they do sign this deal, um, I think it's really easy to make the case that yields continue to rise from here. So I, I think it's it's not a good backdrop from a um, from a yield perspective in the United or from a bond perspective in the United States because yields will rise. I think um, on the on the back of this deal, yeah. I think the equity market and, and I think our strategists, uh, our equity strategists, are more or less in uh, in line with this view as well. You know, the equity market is going to perform well again in the coming year too, right? It's again if the fundamental pieces remain in place for that to happen, it's really easy to make that case. Tom Porcelli, always great to get your thoughts. Thanks. Good everyone. to see you, buddy. Tom Porcelli, RBC Capital Markets Chief. You U.S. economist. We're fortunate to have David Kirkpatrick in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm fortunate to be here. There you go. David's a tech on me, a CEO and founder. So, David, I know you, you look at all things tech. You've got a, just a great view of what's happening in Silicon Valley. Is what's going on here with, you know, you look at Uber, you look at 
Lyft, you look at WeWork pulling that deal, the Smile Direct deal, there seems to be a disconnect between private market valuations coming out of Silicon Valley and SoftBank and public markets. What do you, what do you make of that this year? Well, SoftBank, I think, had a extreme impact on the markets, the private market's opinion about what a company could be worth. Um, because, But they believe, Masayoshi-san believes, he can be a kingmaker. He can identify which CEOs can take a company and make it into the next Facebook. I think, to some extent, the existence of Facebook, in particular, confused a lot of people, thinking that that could happen in any industry. And that's sort of the logic behind investing all that money in Uber or, or WeWork, which SoftBank did. I think we do now have something of a bubble. Uh, which I think SoftBank is the single biggest contributor to. So in, in that sense, it's a problem. It's a problem. So the, the issue when you, when you look at what Masasan is saying here is full steam ahead. We're, our vision is still very much intact. We're going to raise another $100 billion fund. We're going to keep doing this. At what point does... You know, Silicon Valley, maybe some of the more Sand Hill Road folks, the venture capital folks in Silicon Valley push back a little bit and say, listen, we have a voice at this table. We think the valuations you're putting on some of these companies is just too much. That's a good question. I think in a lot of the companies, you know, one of the things that's happened with SoftBank is since they have been the lead investor on so many subsequent rounds in specific companies, they keep raising the market cap of companies that they, so they're showing a paper gain in their earlier investments, and a lot of other Silicon Valley venture capitals are coming along with that. It's hard for them to complain, because if SoftBank's willing to put in money into Uber, you know, we work at 47 billion, and you're another VC that put money in at 5 billion, you like that, right? <laughs> Until right. it's worth 8 billion. Now, in many of these cases, the, that deflation hasn't yet occurred. So I, I think in general, you're not seeing a massive reaction against SoftBank. People just hope it continues to succeed. Well, here's my question. If you uh, are saying that there is something of a bubble here, how does it burst? Well, I think it's burst in the Uber and WeWork cases already, and that has got a lot of people nervous. So you um, think that we've seen the extent well, of the pain there? Well, here's one thing that I really think is going to be closely followed, and that is what happens to the money that that. SoftBank has thrown after bad in the case of WeWork because they're putting even more money in to save the company, right? They could have sort of walked away. Uh, I think that's, if, if WeWork somehow stabilizes and finds a path to profitability, which I can't see happening in any near term, but if it were to happen, basically that stanches sort of a whole flood of, of negative stuff that could otherwise happen. Um, also, if Uber could somehow figure out a way to be profitable, some people say their food delivery might be the key. It's a big part of their business, believe it or not. Uh, but I, I don't see a big fundamental shift happening in terms of, of the psychology. Every time we used to discuss these companies, we talk about how they've disrupted the industry. Do you remember that? Disrupted was like the buzzword of several yep. years ago. Every conversation, disruption, disruption. They have destroyed industries and I just wonder what happens to these industries once these companies show they can't make a profit I don't fully buy that way of looking at it we'll push I back mean, then please I mean I think that you know we, we I, I was saying this on TV before you know Masayoshi Son has done something very positive in the conviction he's had about the technology, the ability of digital technology to transform global economies and I believe that is happening. And I think he has been ultimately the, one of the biggest cheerleaders for that and put his money where his mouth was. 
And I think that's not bad. Um, I, I think many of these industries needed a kick in the pants. Um, and I don't think that you've seen, I don't worry as much as you seem to worry about the value destruction that's happened, say, in the taxi industry, which was an industry largely controlled by the mafia in many cities, right? So, hey, you know, it took a tough guy like, like Travis Kalanick to come in and shake it up. That wasn't all bad. David Kirkpatrick will continue the conversation another time to Economy CEO and founder. Time is up. It's not that I don't want to argue. I promise you I do. <laughs> Pleased to say that phoning in and joining us now, Jeff Yu, UBS Wealth Management Head of the UK Investment Office, joining us out of London. Good morning to you, Jeff. Morning. We remain underweight equities. That's the line from you guys still. Why, Jeff? Uh, well, you know, right now, uh, we just think there needs to be a distinction between pricing out the downside, you know, pricing in the upside. I think these two are separate things. And uh, uh, we may have um, you know, started to confuse the two a bit you know, at this point. And I think it's important to make uh, that distinction. Uh, look at where earnings growth is heading. Just look at where economic growth is heading. I think it's a bit too early to pop the champagne bottle um, or cork some for now. Hmm. So, Jeff, we got some uh, European economic data today a little bit better on the margin. What do you take of that? Uh, well, I think it's um, important to, to, to look at what's better. So on the services side, it's all you know, looking a bit better. But you know, can we say the same for you know, manufacturing um, and, um, and taking a step back? What actually is you know, driving Europe? You know, what are the drivers of Europe? If you look at German factory orders you know, out today, um, down to 5.4% year on year. Sure, the month in the year number was um, better. But I still think you know, there are quite a few challenges up ahead. And um, that will only strengthen the conversation whether fiscal is going to happen. Jeff, how much pushback? do you get from your clients? Uh, not not as much as one would think, I think. You know, I, I think for the last you know, two or three years, um, uh, with the exception of maybe, you know, December, you know, last year, it has been a case of uh, um, owning this rally reluctantly. I think the whole market's reluctant bulls and right now. Um, U.S. equities, you know, being a big overweight, you know, for example, because there's simply a lack of alternative. And I don't think that's um, changed, you know, too much. Um, however, I would I would say that this talk of late cycle probably, you know, has compared to even a year or two ago and it has, you know, really come off. You know, so we're just taking a day at a time. I don't think there's too much, you know, pushback. Um, but uh, there is um, a bit of an opportunity cost of not being more aggressively in the market. And it's something that we'll be cognizant of. Jeff, let's talk about the trade negotiations. The so-called negotiation gaps have closed. I just wonder what's left. Is that a cause for concern or hope? It's not a cause of concern per se, because I just still think there's a disconnect between what the market's expecting and what realistically um, the two sides you know, can actually put forward. You know, for the best part of the summer, you know, China's been stressing it's important to separate the structural issues and the uh, second track of you know, IP, of um, you know, tech, you know, things like that, you know, from the tariff side of things. You know, the tariff side was always going to be the easier one, uh, you know, political you know, window dressing you know, versus um, the uh, long-term structural issues, you know, which will be a multi-year, even a multi-decade you know, process. So I don't think those gaps are that wide at all. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, our markets are you know, looking for more at this point. And on balance, I would say yes. So I think you know, that's where there is scope for some disappointment. Um, but we have to bear in mind, no shorter term relief, that's always welcome. And it's something that we can look forward to. A lot of people have been talking about how trade has, uh, the trade tensions have already impeded certain businesses. Mm-hmm. Are there certain businesses mm-hmm. that you stopped investing in because of the uh, effects of the ongoing trade uh, skirmishes? 
I really think you're seeing this um, across the board, and you know that's why um, it's important to keep relatively conservative in a growth forecast for, for next year. On the one hand, you know for companies directly involved um, in trade on the front lines, um, you know whose products will um, be hurt by tariffs. You know clearly they need to um, hold back on investment, um, but then you know, that will filter down through the supply chain, right? So um, if there's a general you know, slowdown in growth, you know take eurozone for example, that's being impacted, and further down the supply chain, it will impact services, it will impact manufacturing um, as well. So the inputs into the companies being invested. So I think you know, that's holding back investment in general right now. It's holding back capex, and it's something that again governments may have to step in in terms of fiscal. There's just a view that things have got better, uh, that the probability of escalation risk between the United States and China has diminished and Brexit risks yep. have receded as well, Jeff. The Prime Minister is speaking mm-hmm. outside Number 10 Downing Street at the moment. Yep. The campaigning has already started. The government, he says, has an oven-ready Brexit deal. What's the guidebook for the next five weeks in the UK mm-hmm. and the issues around Brexit for markets? Well, I think rule number one is don't believe a thing that the polls are saying, right? Uh, we've uh, all been there before on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, so I think that's important to take into account. And also, you know, manifesto promises, you know, that uh, the, uh, whether you know, that can be realized um, is a separate issue. But I do think we can see uh, some um, convergence in terms of everyone's going to be pledging to actually you know, spend a bit more. So, you know, that may make life a bit easier, you know, for um, those um, worried a bit about growth. Um, but I would say, you know, follow things as they go along and just you know, bear in mind, this deal right now, you know, that's the with well, it's it's a it's it's a withdrawal agreement. You know, we're still some ways to go. You know, before establishing the long-term relationship between the European Union you know, and the UK, and of course, you know, um, when we get to the twelfth, um, the evening may throw out some surprises, and we'll just go from there. So, Jeff, it's interesting. I think it's you know, one could argue, as you just mentioned, don't believe the polls, yeah. uh, and it's all going to come down to the election. That sounds to me like I'm just sitting on the sidelines here. I mean, you just it's way too close to call here. Lots of different things could actually occur here. Is that kind of what you're hearing from? some of your clients? Totally. And if you look at you know, how we're positioning for this, and you know, take FX, for example, the move in sterling we've seen is the pricing out of no deal risk, right? So similar with trade, you, know, you want to price out the risk of a total breakdown or further escalation. Um, but to go beyond, say, um, you know, 132 and cable, you know, to make a dash um, through 135 or to 140, you know, that's going to be a more medium term issue. We have to establish, you know, so A, you know, what happens after the election and B, you know, what that long term relationship is going to be as well. So for now, it's a holding pattern. You've taken off your underweight. You've removed some of your shorts. Um, but that's, again, different from going long. So if there is some sort of yeah. Brexit uh, agreement in the near term, mm-hmm. are you going to flood into mm-hmm. London real estate? Uh, well, um, you know, there have been uh, plenty of um, questions um, on that, you know, from our international clients. You know, that's a traditional um, source of investment, you know, waiting for John to send in his bids as well. Um, but at the same time, I do think, you know, that will depend, you know, on um, the overall you know, regulatory framework, the tax framework, you know, along with, you know, what the government policies, um, you know, are as well. Because if you look at the market here, it really goes well beyond Brexit. Clearly, the uncertainty has not helped, you know, but there are many moving parts um, to um, uh, that side of things. Um, but inquiries certainly picking up this year compared to the last two years. Just for the record, I'm not sure I meet the minimum requirements to open a UBS account. <laughs> well, but, but, but John, I, I don't think I do anyway. Would you think that you'd buy London real estate, John, or do you think it would be countryside? Are you trying to get me in trouble totally. on, on this show? 100%. Look, I think there's going to be a lot of appetite for London real estate, given mm-hmm. that it's been held back so much, Jeff. But you've got to get over several obstacles. One is not just the divorce agreement. The next is the agreement beyond that. What does the future relationship look like? And I just wanted, Jeff, to that degree, the wall of capital that some people think exists 
that is waiting to go yeah. into the UK, does it wait for the election to end or does it wait for the next stage of discussions with the European Union to close? I don't think it will need to wait for the next European discussion because if you look at some of the international you know, interests, um, very little of that over the last you know, decade or two you know, has been um, for the UK's um, relationship you know, for the EU. I think you know, that's just an asset allocation diversification. They see this uh, as an attractive market. So I think that side of things, um, unless you're an entrepreneur that wants to invest in a business and let's say you know, there's a commercial element to it, perhaps the EU negotiations will matter. But for private individuals, I think that's secondary. Yeah. Just before we let you go, Jeff, let's get a conviction call from you. What's the big call from you guys at the moment? So still, I would say we will um, you know, push back against the notion of adding aggressively to risk. We prefer to um, be somewhat underway, clip the coupon, you know, clip the dividend, and then just focus on the growth outlook and see you know, where the next catalyst you know, comes from, but staying underway for now. Hey, Jeff, always great to catch up with you. If you change the call, no doubt, give us a call and we'll catch up. Jeff Yu, UBS Wealth Management Head of the UK Investment Office, joining us out of London on trade talks, Brexit, and where to put your money or where not to put it. Well, the on-again, off-again momentum behind the trade deal between the U.S. and China seems to be on again. The momentum, again, seems to be building a little bit, maybe even get a phase one type of deal uh, signed next month. Uh, that would be good for financial markets, including emerging markets. To get the latest, we welcome Esther Law. Esther is an emerging markets fixed income portfolio manager for Amundi Asset Management uh, located in London. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. So give us your sense of kind of how you think this trade negotiation is going and, and what might be in a, in a trade one, a phase one type of deal and, and kind of what you think that would mean for emerging markets. Yeah, good morning. Um, I think the deal, like a mini deal, is somehow already priced in. But nonetheless, when we have a confirmed a mini deal or phase one deal comes through, there should be some relief in emerging market assets, especially on EMFX, which has been lagging the move in the hard currency bonds in particular. You know, I, I got to say, we get these headlines every day. President Trump uh, coming out and either uh, indicating it's it's a go or it's not. Today, it's a go. On the Chinese side, uh, we have gotten a little bit of conflicting uh, messages. Did overnight, there was a report saying that they were worried that they were giving in too much to Washington and not getting enough in return. How concerned are you about that type of line out of the PBOC and out of, uh, out of Premier, uh, out of uh, Xi Jinping? I think having seen so many back and forth, like you said, um, the market is much more massaged and used to, to this uncertainty. Um, I am a bit worried more because of the price action getting ahead of itself, thinking that there'll be more than just, like, let's say, a pause in the tariff. Um, but I really don't expect a very smooth and straight road uh, on this trade war. Um, I do think that there will be constant back and forth and volatility will just become part of our lives. So, Esther, as it relates to emerging markets, I mean, maybe I'm just too risk adverse, but it, it's awful difficult to, for me to envision investors taking any type of bullish stance on emerging markets generally, given this trade uncertainty, um, which may or may not be resolved in the next couple of months. I think, yes, the trade uncertainty has 
you know, will not be a positive sign and it will continue to weigh on more growth forecasts going forward. However, we, I think we are in a world that is offset by the very loose monetary policy globally. And that has really um, made EM uh, fixed income in particular looking very attractive. Um, ultimately, I think the EM debt returns have a lot to do with the inflows. And should we have the negative um, yield persistence uh, in the you know in the coming months that will still be relatively supportive uh, for EM fixed income whereas for EM FX and EM de- uh, EM equities that will be a bit more um, uh, unclear uncertainty Esther what's your highest conviction bet right now I think um, we have to go through our usual list um, to to select a, a good fundamentals and ideally which with a, 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 as less noise as possible. Um, I quite like Russia because I believe the fundamentals are very strong and they've gone through um, a, a lot of adjustments in terms of adjusting to sanctions. So in a way, they are already quite closed in, in many uh, manners. Um, and the, the execution of the fiscal rule has been very, um, very resilient. And that's helping the fiscal matrix becoming very, uh, very sound. So... In terms of Latin America, I know there's so much political uncertainty down there. It makes it very difficult for investors to uh, look at that area with conviction. How are you approaching kind of Latin America broadly defined? Are there any areas uh, that you find of interest? I think at the moment, with the recent news flows, uh, Brazil is coming out as a more positive on the margin. Um, the FX is still going to be a bit volatile, um, but I think the, the passing of the pension reforms has removed a big uncertainty out of the way, and that should um, start to see external investors going back more into the fixed income market. So you said uh, the central banks are sort of uh, giving a bit of a tailwind to emerging markets, although today it does seem like the mood is that central banks are moving toward a holding pattern rather than an easing pattern. Is that enough, just a holding pattern here across the board uh, to continue to support emerging markets? I think the holding patterns, in a way, are actually positive for the currency to, to stop the, the yield spread being narrower. We only need a hold plus a, a relatively positive backdrop um, externally. I think um, that is still a case for EM debt. Esther Law, thank you so much for joining us. Esther is Emerging Markets Fixed Income Portfolio Manager for Amundi Asset Managers Management, joining us uh, from London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.